Hello, this is Peggy Joyce Ruth. Welcome to our podcast and hope you enjoy this teaching. If you would like to listen to more in-depth teachings, please sign up for our Psalm 91 family at PeggyJoyceRuth.org. Every one of our Christian holidays are really feast days that are kept in remembrance of times when God intervened in the past on our behalf. I want you to think about that. Every Christian holiday that we celebrate is really a feast day that God has given to us and we keep that feast day, we keep that holiday in remembrance of all the times when God intervened on our behalf in a certain area. Now in the Old Testament, they celebrated from the other end of the spectrum. See, under the Old Covenant, those Jewish feast days were celebrated ahead of the fact. Each one of those Old Testament feast days was a type and shadow of some very important event that was going to take place in the future under the New Covenant. See, after man fell, God had a well-devised plan so that man could be redeemed again. And what I'm wanting us to see today is that every Old Testament Jewish feast depicts a very vital part of that redemption that God had planned for us. Now, there are seven Old Testament feast days, and they were each one a shadow of the real thing that was going to come very soon under the New Covenant. It was a shadow, or, or it was a picture of one of the events in the life of Jesus. Now, I want you to think what a shadow is. A shadow is what's passed out in front of the object. When the sun's behind you and, and uh, you're walking, your shadow goes out ahead of you. Well, that shadow will take on the form of the real thing, but you can't get a totally accurate picture of the real thing from the shadow. It's accurate enough that when you see a shadow, you know the real thing's about to come, but it's not a, accurate enough that you know exactly what the real thing is. Now, I can remember when we used to play hide-and-go-seek, and you remember what it was like when you would be hiding, and then all of a sudden, you would see the shadow of the seeker, and you'd pull way back in your hiding place so that, that he wouldn't be able to find you. But because you saw that shadow, you knew that the one that was seeking, you knew that they were coming right behind, and that's why you pulled back so that you wouldn't be found. Well, that's exactly what those feast days were. Those were seven Jewish feasts that were shadows of or they were symbols of or, or pictures of the real thing that was going to be coming up soon. Now, I'm going to give you some examples. The Passover feast of the Old Testament is a type and shadow of the death, of the crucifixion of Jesus. The lamb that they used at the Passover feast had to be without blemish. And that was because it was a picture of the sinless Lamb of God, the sacrificial Lamb of God that was going to be slain for the sins of the world. Now the blood of that Passover Lamb on that very first Passover feast was taken and it was put on the doorpost there in Egypt. And the reason they did that is because it was going to protect them from the death angel. Now that was a picture of the fact that Jesus' blood protects and redeems us. Now, that's why Jesus said, eat this bread and, and drink this wine in remembrance of my body that was broken for you and my blood that was shed for you. Then in the Old Testament, three days after Passover, came the Feast of First Fruits. Now, this was a celebration of the first of the crops that were coming through the ground. 
They celebrated and they had a feast when those first crops started coming through the ground because they were excited. They knew their crop was coming. And it is sig significant that the feast of first fruits in the Old Testament was just three days after the Passover. They See, God told them specifically when to have those feast days. They didn't come up with that on their own. In Leviticus, God told them when to have it. And I'm sure they probably thought, you know, why would God tell us to have one feast, Passover, and then three days have another feast? They probably wondered about that. Well, if the Passover represents the crucifixion of Jesus, what is it that happened three days after the crucifixion? It was the resurrection. So that feast of first fruits is the type and shadow of the resurrection. That's why God had them celebrate that second feast three days later. See, Jesus is the first fruits from the dead, signifying that there was more to come. Then 50 days after the feast of first fruits in the Old Testament came the feast of Pentecost. See, at the Feast of Pentecost, the Jews were celebrating the fact that the whole crop had come in. By this time, they were bringing in the harvest, so they were ready to celebrate again. Well, what happened 50 days after Jesus was resurrected? That was when the whole crop came in. That's when the church was birthed into being. See, remember, he, spent, he had spent 40 days with his disciples after the resurrection telling them all about the kingdom of God. And then he commanded that they wait in Jerusalem, and they waited for 10 more days. And what happened then after 10 days? On the day of Pentecost, 50 days after resurrection, they were in the upper room, and Acts 2 verse 4 tells us that the Holy Spirit was outpoured, and 5,000 people came in that day. So the church was first. The whole crop came in. The full harvest at Pentecost under the Old Covenant was just a picture. It was a type and shadow of the fact that the church was going to come in on Pentecost. Three of the Old Testament Jewish feasts right together, Passover, First Fruits, Pentecost, all within 53 days, is symbolic of Christ's death, three days later his resurrection, and then 50 days later the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And all of that came within 53 days. Now that's no coincidence. That was well planned. God planned it that way because it was a picture to let us know, uh, to let the people of the Old Covenant know that something very important was going to happen under the New Covenant. Then many, many months went by for the Jews without any feast days. And those long months waiting for the next feast symbolizes the fact that the church age has waited a long time. It's waited 2,000 years uh, for the next big spiritual intervention. Okay, what's the next spiritual intervention that we're waiting for? It's the second coming of Jesus. So after many months, there's another grouping of Old Testament feasts. And, and that these feasts end with the Feast of Tabernacles. Now the Jews would always get excited as they began to get ready for the Feast of Trumpets and the Feast of Atonement and the Feast of Tabernacles because it's been a long time since they've had a celebration. Well, the Feast of Tabernacles is a type and shadow of the second coming of Jesus. It's been a long time. It's been 2,000 years. And we too get excited and we're expectant. We're waiting for this great event. And we're getting ready because we know the time is drawing near. As they knew that the time was drawing near for the Feast of Tabernacles to come, they would get so excited. Well, we can feel that same excitement because we know spiritually something's about to happen. 
Now, can you see how much fun it can be to see the correlation between the Old Testament feast and all the events in the life of Jesus? In fact, the only way that you can fully understand the Old Testament is by seeing the fulfillment of it under the New Covenant. See, the Feast of Passover, the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Pentecost, and then the three feasts that made up Tabernacle take on a whole new meaning when we see the fulfillment under the New Covenant. When we see that fulfillment in the crucifixion, in the resurrection, in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and then in the second coming. Now, someone once said, and it's true, that the old is in the new contained, and uh, I mean the new is in the old contained, and the old is by the new explained. And when you think about that, the new covenant is contained over there in the old covenant. And the old covenant is explained after we get into the new covenant. Because everything in the new covenant of any significance has a shadow of it in the old covenant, or has a type of it in the old covenant. And then by the same token, those things under the Old Covenant that couldn't be fully understood were explained and understood when the fulfillment came in the New Covenant. In fact, the only way that we're going to fully understand what took place in the Old Covenant is when we see it, when we see the fulfillment of it in the New. Now, the word feast comes from a Hebrew word, and the root of that Hebrew word carries the idea of keeping an appointment. So when God called a feast, it was an appointed time that he was going to keep covenant, he was going to keep an appointment with his covenant people. And what he would do, he would meet with them on these special occasions and they would celebrate that which was to come. Now the Jews thought that they were celebrating whatever it was that was happening at the time. They thought they were celebrating the harvest coming in or whatever. But That was only a picture of what was to come. So God was celebrating what was going to be planned under the new covenant for redemption. Now these were his covenant people and he was celebrating with them the things that he was going to accomplish. And so you can almost feel the excitement of God because he knew that he had this plan of redemption that was going to buy mankind back to himself. And everything was pointing toward the Emmanuel that was to come, the God with us. Now, God still makes and keeps appointments with us individually. If you'll think with me, when you became born again, he met with you individually as Savior. He celebrated the fact that he became your Savior. Then he met you as baptizer and celebrated with you the fact that he baptized you. And we've all been met by the Lord from time to time as the healer. So he still makes appointments with us. But he made appointments in the old covenant with his covenant people as a nation. Now he's making appointments with us individually. Okay, I want to point something else out. When we recognize how the feast days all correlate with the things under the new covenant then we become just a little bit confused over the fact that the birth of Jesus is celebrated on December the 25th. See, in the first place, we realize that December the 25th was not the season of his birth because the shepherds very seldom are out in the fields on December the 25th. That's not a time when they're in the fields. And that date doesn't seem to correlate with anything under the Old Covenant, none of the Old Testament feast days. So I started doing some research because I thought, did we as Christians just pick a date at random 
And I thought if we did, that's not good because I know how important dates are to God. He was very specific in the Old Testament. Well, in the research, I found that Christians have been celebrating on December the 25th clear back to the first century. So then I knew there had to be a reason. They didn't just pick that date at random because many of those people back in the first century would have been alive at the time of Christ's birth. So I knew that December the 25th was not just happen chance. It wasn't just coincidental. Then I found out that in that day and time, most of the people recognized the time of conception as the birth date rather than the day when, when, someone, when a child is separated from the mother's womb. The birth date is when the baby was conceived. Now that makes sense when we see how many scriptures there are that tell us that God knew us when we were still in our mother's womb. And that's kind of a plus for anti-abortion when you think about it. Well, I knew that for December the 25th to be an accurate date, it would most likely correspond with some Jewish feast day. And the reason we know that is because all of the main events in the life of Jesus correspond with some Jewish feast day. We know that. We can see it now under the New Covenant. Well, I'm going to show you something that I think is exciting. It's a fairly well-established and accepted fact that December the 25th is really the date of the conception of Jesus rather than the birth. So actually, December the 25th is the, is the celebration of what happened in Luke 1, verse 35. And I want you to turn there. When we celebrate Christmas, we actually need to start the Christmas story here in Luke 1, verse 35. So many times we start in Luke chapter 2 when Joseph and Mary are going to Bethlehem. But really the Christmas story starts before that. It starts nine months before that. And in Luke 1 verse 35 it says, The angel answered and said to Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and for that reason the Holy Offspring shall be called the Son of God. Okay, if in fact Mary conceived the seed of God in her womb by the power of the Holy Spirit on December the 25th, then if you'll count 280 days from that date, that's the number of days that a baby stays in the mother's womb, then 280 days does fall on a Jewish feast day. I thought that was so exciting. And the feast that it falls on is the Feast of Tabernacles, September the 29th. Now the Hebrew calendar varies just a little bit from our modern day calendar, but on the Jewish calendar it falls exactly on the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, Tabernacles refers to the fact that God pitched his tent among men. We, I get excited when I realize that the birth of Jesus fell on the Feast of Tabernacles when he was going to pitch his tent among men. Because that's exactly what Jesus did. For 33 years, he pitched his tent among men and tabernacled among us. Okay, I want you to turn to Isaiah 7, verse 14. It is so exciting when you find how all of these prophecies just fit together like a puzzle. In Isaiah 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. 
Okay, so this confirms again how Jesus tabernacled among man. Because Emmanuel means God with us. Most of the Old Testament feasts had a twofold type and shadow. Almost all of them have two ways uh, in which they are picturing something under the New Covenant. Now we know that the Feast of Tabernacles is a type and shadow, first of all, of the birth of Jesus. A type and shadow of Christmas, Emmanuel, God with us. But then the Feast of Tabernacles is also a type and shadow of the time when Jesus is going to come back the second time. He's going to come and tabernacle among us for a thousand years in the millennial. But the first phase now of this type and shadow is when he came the first time to tabernacle among us. And the first type and shadow is what we celebrate at Christmas time. And when we began to see the overall plan of God and how he planned from the very beginning to make appointments and meet with his people at these feast days and celebrate what he was going to be doing under the new covenant in the future to carry out redemption, we just stand in awe. It's just marvelous to be able to see how perfectly he had it planned out. And every time I see how perfectly he planned all these things out, it helps me to trust him a little more. Anytime we look at that and say, Lord, you had everything so perfectly planned. Then when something comes up in our life, we can look at it and we can say, Lord, that's not too big. After all, look what you did. Look what you did for us. Look what you planned ahead of time and then celebrated it every year until the day of completion. Now, with all of this in mind, I want us to take a look at Christmas from an even earlier point of departure. We're going to start back clear at the time of Elijah. I want you to look at 2 Kings 2, verse 9. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, why do you start back with Elijah to celebrate Christmas? We're going to find that Elijah plays a very important part in the Christmas story. Now, Elijah was a mighty prophet of God. And in 2 Kings 2, verse 9, he's finished his ministry and he's about to ascend to the Father in the chariot of fire. And in in verse 9, it says, Now it came about when Elijah and Elisha had crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha, What shall I do for you before I'm taken from you? And Elisha said, Please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. Let a double portion of your spirit, some of your translations will say a double portion of your anointing, uh, of the spirit of Elijah to be on him. Under the new covenant, we talk about the mantles of ministry, we talk about mantles of anointing, and we're talking about things in the spiritual realm. But in the old covenant, a mantle of ministry was represented in a physical prayer shawl that that prophet wore. Let me show you this in verse 11. It came about that as Elijah and Elisha were going over and talking, that behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire which separated the two of them, and Elijah went up into a, in a whirlwind to heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more, and he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he also took up the mantle of Elijah 
that fell down from him and he returned and stood by the banks of the Jordan. So it was a physical thing that fell down at his feet. And he picked it up. He took that mantle of Elijah that fell from him and he struck the waters and he said, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? Okay, so Elisha now had Elijah's mantle and he was going to use it. It was a physical mantle. He picked it up. We find that he struck the waters. He asked, where is the God of Elijah? And when he struck the waters with that physical mantle, the waters parted. There was a tremendous power in that physical mantle that Elijah had worn. Now, Elisha was found worthy to wear that mantle of Elijah. He was found worthy because he was obedient, He was faithful to believe God. But tradition tells us that no one was found worthy to wear Elijah's mantle after Elisha died. In fact, tradition tells us that it was a prayer shawl and that it was made out of camel's hair. And tradition goes on to tell us that after Elisha died, that mantle, because no one was worthy to wear it, was folded and it was put into the Holy of Holies. So years and years go by and no one's worthy to wear that mantle according to tradition. And finally, we come to the end of the Old Testament. I want you to look at Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. And we're going to find that the Old Testament ends with a prophecy. That's how the whole Old Testament ends. Malachi chapter 4 Starting with verse 4, it says, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statues and the ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Okay, notice he said, I'm going to send you Elijah right at the end, and he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. This is a very important prophecy. Then, after this prophecy was given, the writings of the Old Testament end, and for 400 years, there's no prophet, there's no voice of God in the land. Now, that 400 years of silence is what separates the writings of the Old Testament from the beginning of the New Testament. So it's a very dry time spiritually during that time. Now, nothing in the Word of God is coincidental. So the fact that the Old Testament ends by saying, I'm going to send you Elijah, and the fact that the New Testament begins with the fulfillment of that prophecy in Malachi is no coincidence. Now, this prophecy also has a twofold fulfillment. The word in Malachi is also talking about the time in Revelation 11, verse 3, when the two witnesses are going to come back to earth. And Elijah will more than likely be one of those two witnesses. And he's going to come right before the great and terrible day of the Lord, right at the end of tribulation. But the first fulfillment of that prophecy is pointing to the time of Elijah's coming right before the Messiah comes the first time. And the reason we know that is because Luke says that very plainly. Okay, now like I said, the Old Testament ends by saying, I'm going to send you Elijah. And then the New Testament opens with the announcement of the arrival of Elijah. I want you to turn to Mark chapter 1. Now Mark was actually written before Matthew, even though it was placed afterwards. So Mark is the first book of the New Testament. 
And Mark starts his book by talking about John the Baptist. The first thing he says is in the beginning of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So the new covenant now opens by saying that this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. And then immediately, Mark begins to quote from the prophet Isaiah, which tells about the messenger that's going to be sent as the forerunner. And he says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. So we find that Isaiah and Malachi both are prophesying the same thing. Now, after all these years, John the Baptist is sent as the forerunner of Jesus, just exactly like Isaiah prophesied, just exactly like as Malachi prophesied. And so you say, well, I thought Elijah was the one that was going to come. What does John the Baptist have to do with Elijah? I thought Elijah was going to be the one to prepare the way. Well, turn to Luke 1, verse 5. Luke gives us just a little more detail, just a little more information. I'm always glad that we have Luke because he kind of clears a few things up that, uh, and helps us to understand because he does give us a little more detail. Now, it's no coincidence that both of these books start with the fulfillment of that last prophecy in the Old Testament. And here in Luke 1 verse 5, it says, In the days of Herod king of Judah... There was a certain priest named Zacharias. Okay, now this is the father of John the Baptist. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all of the commandments and requirements of the Lord. And they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now it came about while Zacharias was performing his priestly service before God, in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, this is no coincidence. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside in the hour of incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him while he's there in the Holy of Holies, standing at the right of the altar of incense. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn back many of the sons of the Israel to the Lord their God. And notice, he fulfills that prophecy in verse 17. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before the Messiah in the spirit and in the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. It's exactly what Malachi pro prophesied. And that's what Luke's doing. He is quoting exactly what Malachi had prophesied 400 years before. And God did exactly what he said he would do. He sent John as the forerunner. And in verse 17, it says, He came in the spirit of Elijah. 
Some of your translations will say he came in the anointing of Elijah or he came in the mantle of Elijah. Now Jesus even confirms that. I'm going to read you something. You don't, you don't have to turn to it. But in Matthew 11 verse 12, Jesus said, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you care to accept it, John himself is Elijah. Okay, those were the words of Jesus. So Jesus is confirming again that John came in the spirit of Elijah to fill, full, fulfill that prophecy in Malachi. Okay, if you'll look on there in Luke 1 verse 15, it says that John was to be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. And because of that, because he was already filled with the Holy Spirit, he was able to recognize the Messiah even before the Messiah was born. Down in verse 41, it says that he actually leaped in his mother's womb when Mary came in carrying the Messiah. Now, I want to share something else with you that's very significant. Later, you can look up in Mark 1, verse 6. But this is an important scripture because it gives us the description of John. It said, John is wearing a leather belt, and he's wearing camel's hair. Okay, later look up 2 Kings 1 verse 8 because that too gives us a description and it's a description of Elijah. And it says that he's wearing a leather belt and tradition tells us that his mantle, we know he had a mantle because it fell down to Elisha, but tradition tells us that his mantle or his prayer shawl was made out of camel's hair. So I think it's interesting and very significant that the Bible describes John's apparel exactly the same way that it describes uh, Elijah's apparel. And then nothing is mentioned again about it in the Old Testament until suddenly, right at the time of Christ's birth, we see John the Baptist, where, uh, or right at the time of Jesus' ministry, we see John the Baptist wearing that leather belt and wearing that camel's hair mantle. Now the Bible seldom ever mentions what someone's wearing. You'll notice that very seldom do you find that. So the fact that it specifically emphasized what Elijah was wearing and what John was wearing has a lot of significance in the Christmas story. Now, especially since the Bible very specifically said that John came in the spirit or came in the mantle or the anointing of Elijah. Okay, I want you to look again there at Luke 1 verse 8. It said that while Zacharias was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division of the office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. It's no coincidence that Zacharias, who is John the Baptist's father, was the one at this exact time in history who was chosen by lot to be there in the Holy of Holies. And then down in verse 11, we find that the angel appears to him and he tells Zacharias that he's going to have a son and his son is going to be John. And he tells him that he is going to fulfill that prophecy there in Malachi. And that he also tells him that he's going to come in the mantle of Elijah. And the angel even gives Zacharias a sign down in chapter 1 verse 20. So that Zacharias will know that what he's telling him is the truth. 
Now, Zacharias would have had access there in the Holy of Holies to that mantle if it has been stored there as tradition says, if tradition is correct. Zacharias would have been right there in the Holy of Holies. He would have had access to the mantle. So when the angel told Zacharias that it was his son that was going to be born, that was going to fulfill this prophecy and come in the mantle of Elijah, then it, it's very likely that that's when he took the mantle to keep it as the, as the angel had prophesied and told him, and he takes that mantle to keep it for his son. Because the first time that we see John there in Mark 1 verse 6, he is wearing the mantle, baptizing people in the baptism of repentance, making these people ready for the day of the Lord, just exactly like Malachi prophesied. And he is clothed in that camel's hair, and he's clothed in the leather belt. In fact, there's a very good possibility that that was one way that the people of that day and time recognized John when he came and recognized that he was the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy because the prophecy had said that the one I'm going to send is going to come in the mantle of Elijah. So it may well be that they recognized him because of the physical mantle that he was wearing. Now something else that's interesting do you remember later when Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? Okay, who were the two names that they, they named? They named Elijah and they named John the Baptist. Well, I've never thought much about that before, but the people recognized the fulfillment of that prophecy in Malachi. And John did come in the same anointing and the same mantle of Elijah. Then, when John was beheaded, and when they saw Jesus operating in the same anointing, that same anointing of power, they could well have assumed that now he had come in the spirit of Elijah and in the spirit of John. Okay, look at verse 19. In verse 19, it was the angel Gabriel that came to bring Zacharias the news. And then down in verse 26, it was the same angel that was sent to Mary. Okay, now this brings us back to the subject of conception. Why is it important to celebrate Christmas by starting back with the date of conception rather than with the birth in the manger? Okay, two things that I want to point out. Number one, apart from the virgin birth, there is no Messiah. Therefore, there would be no need to celebrate Christmas. If we didn't start and celebrate it because it was a virgin birth, we could forget Christmas altogether. The virgin birth is the primary importance to Christmas, and I believe that's why the Feast of Tabernacles was supernaturally placed by God at the day of conception rather than the day of the actual birth in Bethlehem because there would have been no miracle birth apart from the virgin birth. And second, there was something that I want us to look at in the life of Mary when she first heard what was going to happen. In verse 28, the angel said, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. And we read that and we think, my goodness, was God playing favorites? Was he showing partiality here? But verse 30 tells us, the, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. See, God knew about Mary's past faithfulness, and she had found favor already in God's eyes, and God also foreknew her future faithfulness and her future obedience. 
He knows our heart. Those whom God knew, he also predestined to become instruments in his kingdom. Now, it took a very special girl to receive that kind of message. It took one that God knew would not break under the pressure because she was going to come under a lot of pressure when this thing came to her, this special favor came to her. Now, we look at the news given to Mary, and we think, you know, how blessed it, it would be to be the mother of the Messiah. And we think, oh, my goodness, that's the most wonderful thing. And it is. But we often fail to look at the stamina that it would take to walk in Mary's shoes and fulfill that mission. I want you to think what she was facing when she heard that news. Number one, she was facing the possibility of being stoned because that was the custom back in that day and time. She was facing the fact that she might have to pay the penalty for, for the people thinking that she was having a baby out of wedlock. Number two, Joseph's word would have been held in higher esteem than Mary because he was a man. And in that day and time, the word of a man was held in higher esteem. Number three, think about the shame that it could possibly have brought on her family. You know, sometimes a person can take persecution on their own. But when their family is being persecuted because of them, then sometimes they can't stand up under that. Number four, it meant bringing shame on the one that she loved and the one she intended to marry. It meant the possibility of losing everything that she held near and dear. And yet, she laid every bit of that on the altar in preference to being willing and obedient to do exactly what God had asked her to do. See, God foreknew that she was going to be willing. Now, her faith and her trust in God counted her as worthy, counted her as righteous, just exactly like Abraham's faith counted him as righteous. Now, can you see that the birth of Jesus began a long time before the story in Bethlehem? There's a lot more to it that can help us when we realize that. And it's this time, right before Mary conceived, while she was talking to the angel, that I want us to apply to our life at this Christmas time. In verse 30, when the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have found favor with the Lord. And then down in verse 36, And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. I want us to stop and realize this miracle that took place with Mary and the miracle that took place with Elizabeth is to give us the encouragement to know that there is absolutely nothing impossible. When you look in the Amplified, that verse 37 says, For with God nothing is ever impossible, and no word from God shall be without power or impossible of fulfillment. There's not any word that God gives us that's without power or impossible of fulfillment. Now, what she was being told was hard. There was no man involved. And that's why Genesis 3.15 tells us that it was the seed of woman. See, that was the first prophecy prophesying the fact that the Messiah would be sent. And it was the seed of woman that was going to crush the head of the enemy. It's the man who produces the seed in the natural, not the woman. But God was showing that in this case, there would be no man involved. It would be the seed of woman. And in the last part of... 35, when he says that the power of the Most High shall overshadow you, and for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. 
Now, even though Mary and Joseph were both of the house and lineage of David, even so, at this point, it's Mary that's going to stand alone in her decision. And in spite of all the possible consequences that were facing her, and in spite of all the thoughts that were, were bound to be bombarding her mind, I want you to look what she says in verse 38. The last part of verse 38, she said, Be it done unto me according to your word. Now that's what I want us to center in on this Christmas season. Be it done unto me according to your word. Now this is the main application that I want you to make. When we hear what the will of God is for our life, now I'm not just talking about the biggies, I'm, I'm talking about all the little daily opportunities that God gives us to be willing and obedient to do his will. When we're faced with the knowledge of what he wants out of us, then I want you to think about what is it that keeps me from being able to say exactly what Mary said? Be it unto me according to your word. What keeps us from submitting just exactly like she did? Sometimes it's the fear of man. You know, sometimes it's, it's just the fear of what people will think. I've heard people say, I really felt impressed to say something to this person or to that person about the Lord, but I was afraid of what they'd think if I did and many times it's the fear of man that, that keeps us from being obedient, keeps us from being able to say exactly what Mary said, be it unto me according to your word. Sometimes it's complacency that keeps us from being obedient. You know, sometimes we know what the will of God is and we fully intend to do it. That's something we intend to do. But procrastination or complacency causes us to come to the place where we're not willing to say, be it unto me according to your will. Even though it was our full intention, we get busy. And when we get busy, we begin to put it off. And as we put it off, sometimes we put it off and we never do it. And we're not obedient. Sometimes it's just plain old self-will that keeps us from being able to say, Be it unto me according to your will. Now God is looking for a people with the same attitude of the heart that was in Mary. He's looking for a people who can say without reservation, Lord, be it unto me according to your will. Whatever it is, Lord, you want me to do. He wants us to have the attitude of, Lord, I'll go wherever you tell me to go. I'll do whatever you tell me to do. I will be obedient. I will walk in the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Where we are indeed ready to leave traditional thinking if it takes it, where we're ready to leave self-will, we're ready to leave these areas of flesh that hold us back, where we're ready to leave the fear of what people think, complacency, or whatever it is that's holding us back from going on with God. Now, I don't want to overly exalt Mary and try to make her almost divine, but we are to learn from her example. And that's a part of what Christmas is all about. Total, unquestioning faith in a father who loves us so much that he sent his son to literally tabernacle among us, to plan it out in the Old Testament and then to celebrate it every year. Now, most of us will never be called upon to face what Mary had to face. We'll probably never be faced with being stoned or, or being an outcast of society. We'll probably never even be faced with having to be rejected by our family for going on with God. But there will be something that challenges our faith. Every one of us will have something that challenges us and tries to keep us from being obedient to the Lord. And it's only the reality of the magnitude of God's love 
that's going to be able to cast out the fears and bring us to the place where we can say, just exactly like Mary said, be it unto me according to your word. Now just like God kept appointments with his covenant people in the Old Testament, and all of those feast day appointments were pointing to Jesus, God is still keeping appointments with us today. And every one of these appointments or every one of these holidays are to celebrate Jesus, to celebrate what he did. Now when we realize that, it's going to make our Christmas season a lot more meaningful. Anytime I realize that the Christian holiday that I'm celebrating is celebrating Jesus and celebrating what he did, then it helps me to know that if God went to that kind of trouble for me, and he went to that kind of trouble to bring redemption to us. It makes us want to put all these other mundane things aside and center in on and just concentrate on his love. I love to think about the fact that for hundreds of years, literally, God feasted and celebrated every year with his covenant people. He was excited. Now, they may have just been celebrating what was going on in their physical life, but he was calling that event into being. Now, if God got excited about it by having it celebrated hundreds of years in advance of its actual happening, then he wants us to get excited every time we celebrate the events in the life of Christ which brought about our redemption. He wants that to be the foremost thing in our celebration at Christmas time. Father, thank you for Christmas. Thank you that you planned it before the foundation of the world. Thank you that you feasted and celebrated and pointed toward it all through the old covenant. And now, Father, I thank you that after the fact, after Christ has truly come and tabernacled among us and brought redemption, thank you now that we can celebrate it each year in remembrance of what you've done for us. Lord, we thank you for that. We pray, Lord, that this will be a very special Christmas time, that we're able to remember what Mary said, and as an example in our own life, Father, that we're going to be able to say, Lord, be it unto me according to your word. Whatever it is that you want me to do, Lord, help me to be obedient. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. Please share this teaching with anyone you think it would minister to. If you would like to listen to more in-depth teachings, please sign up for our Psalm 91 family at PeggyJoyceRuth.org.